Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we make old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining me this evening is someone who uh, a lot of you know, maybe a lot of you haven't seen. I certainly had not seen his face until just before we went on. He had always just been a presence in my chat and kind of around the communities that I like to run in. Uh, But you all know him and love him. You respect him greatly. You've seen him in your chat. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Crafty Matt Craft. Yeah, hey, what's going on, you guys? It is great. How heads? (laughs) Absolutely. um, I have been called that drunk guy that shows up at the industry dinner and just never goes home and nobody notices. (laughs) That, that's a claim to fame. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, no, it is. It is. So uh, I'm a mod right now on, you know, with the Legion of Myth. I also do an actual play with a channel called James Corp. Uh, we're playing uh, Savage Pathfinder. So nice. that happens every Monday in the afternoon because there are a bunch of UK guys. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But other than that, I don't have a podcast. I don't have... A broadcast i don't do a blog i'm just that guy <laughs> but one thing you do have is a vast knowledge of fifth edition D. you are uh, perhaps most famous for uh, telling people to read the dungeon master's guide and so tonight we are basically dedicating the show to yours and my defense of fifth edition D from a community that largely either is indifferent to 5e or outright hates it. But, and doesn't have to be that way. Right. 5e is not that bad of a game. Community might be, mm-hmm. but not the game itself. Absolutely. But before we jump into that, of course, because it's your first time on Rolling Bones, we have tradition to observe here. So starting at the very beginning of your gaming career, how did you get into this little hobby of ours? Um, third grade, uh, I went to a school in Mission Viejo, California. I live in California. I've lived in California all my life. My father was a Marine who basically got stationed out here and just stayed. Um, and in third grade in the cafeteria, I noticed that some older kids, uh, maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade were playing a game with dice and talking about dragons. And I watched and then eventually they let me into the game, but not as an actual player. I was either the torchbearer 
or I was the the guy that was hauling around all of their gear, but I didn't care because I was part of the game, which was amazing to me. Um, my real start in Dungeons and Dragons was probably with the red box that I bought for $15 off of my buddy, Randy. Mm-hmm. And it had a key in it for making dungeons. And we used to sit, this is about maybe fifth grade. We used to sit in the cafeteria and we used to draw out all sorts of different maps. Mm-hmm. And then we would swap back and forth, running each other through these maps. And then in uh, high school is really where I dove very deeply into role-playing, specifically Palladium games, riffs, all of that kind of stuff. In fact, ran a four-year dog boy campaign. Um, actually got called to the office one year because uh, either a student or a teacher, librarian or whatnot, right? They thought that we were doing, uh, uh, we were talking about terrorist things when we were playing <laughs> our risk campaign. And so I was very fortunate that one of our uh, history teachers, Mr. Sibby, he um, was also a gamer. He was a 2E gamer. And because of what happened to us in freshman year, he decided to open up his classroom during lunch and after school for a role-playing club. And he ran a 2E game mm-hmm. and let anybody come in and run whatever they want. So from there, I ran Star Wars. I ran Palladium. Um, I had an, the Aliens Adventure game, which never play that game. It is awful. <laughs> it is horrible. Leading Edge doesn't know how to design a game, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly go for the new Free League game. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's that's basically where it was. Then I got out of high school, went into college, started playing more cyberpunk and also Call of Cthulhu um, and then got married to my wife, had kids. Uh, my wife was one of the head cheerleaders at her school. So when she came over, it was I got to like put all of this stuff away. Yep. <laughs> and uh, but um, then. uh I'm guessing, uh, I don't know, I don't know how many years uh, ago, one of my salesmen, because I'm a salesman by trade, uh, one of my salesmen was talking about running a Pathfinder game, and I went, oh yeah, I used to do that, and it just, and then he bought me a, um, uh, uh, he bought me the 5e player's handbook, and he, uh, and then he got me um Art and Arcana for Christmas, which was all the history of D&D. And then it just kind of exploded from there, much to my wife's chagrin. (laughs) Gotcha. Now, of all the games that you've played over the years, I know this is a difficult question for a lot of people. It's like picking between your children. Uh, What would you say your favorite game system is, however you would quantify a favorite game? This, This is my favorite game. Conan 2D20. Um, it, this game is tailor made for my game mastering style, which is kind of over the top. I flail my hands a lot. I can't speak without my hands. So apologize about that. But, um, I get really excited when players get to do cool stuff in 2D20 mm-hmm. and the system of momentum and threat that ebb and flow of awesome stuff that's happening just delights me to no end uh think of the um the the chase scene uh in raiders of the lost ark where indy's going after the uh the, the caravan that's yeah. carrying the ark oh, right yeah. and that right there is the 
uh, epitome of momentum and threat. Oh yeah. And how 2d20 works. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this is the second show in a row where Raiders has come up as an example of what role-playing should be. So I, I think that's going to end up kind of sticking with us. Yeah. I have an entire write-up of it on, um, on Legion of Myths, um, their gilded server, but then also on Modifius's forums as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And obviously Conan plays very well, uh, to, to me, uh, being who I am and, and having the lineage that right. I have. Right, right. So yeah, I make I make it uh, a joke that whenever I'm in chat, I force you to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it's one of those things, I don't hate talking about it, I just don't want all of you out there who watch the show to hate me talking about it. No, no, we'll never hate that. I mean, that right, th- I mean, you're, you are, uh, uh, what, two, three, four steps away from sword and sorcery pulp uh, royalty. Yeah. So, you'll never be crowned king, but it's your, it's your claim to fame. Yeah, absolutely. And, and whenever there's a, like, oh, say a fun fact about yourself thing at work or some kind of social event. I usually break that out, and for the, like the two cool people in the room, it's generally yeah. a, a good. It, it gets a good reaction. Everyone else is just like, "Oh yeah, I I remember that Schwarzenegger movie." I'm just like, "Okay, right. yeah." There's or they go, "Who?" Yeah, yeah. Conan O'Brien. You're right. <laughs> so, when it comes to, and you've already talked a little bit about this uh, from the game master side, kind of your, your preferred style when it comes to running your games, but when it comes to playing in games, how do you generally like to play when you get the chance to not be uh, pulling the strings behind the screen, as it were? Uh, which is very rare. Um, yeah. The reason that I like being the game master is, one, I like to talk, and two, I always like to play, and I hate waiting for my turn. But... Um, generally when I play, I play in first person. I really do try to get into, uh, my character's, uh, persona, um, uh, speak as my character, uh, let the game master know what I'm doing in character, um, and then generally wait for the game master to tell me to roll the dice, which is the way you should do it. Mm -hmm. You you just made Max very happy in chat here. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Wait for the dungeon master to call on you. Exactly. Now, uh, those of us who put a lot of time into this, we do so not for the money, because there's barely any money in this, but we mostly do it for love. And the reason we love this game is we have very fond memories of playing it with our friends, forming relationships over it. So if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Um... Fondest RPG memory. Wow. Um, that would probably be when I discovered that um, the one of the guys in my freshman English class, he also played role-playing games, but specifically he played Robotech. And I hadn't seen Robotech since I was a little kid and watched the show on television. So the fact that he had all of these Robotech books, we just, I mean, it was like we were instant friends. And what 
so from there, Damon and I, we would create, we would finish up all of our work in class, and then we would sit in the back, and all we would do is we just make characters, uh, and then we would be in the halls, and then we would talk about it um, between uh, between classes. We would like pass notes to each other and stuff like that. At lunchtime, when we weren't playing in an actual game, we would run mock combats in Robotech. And that really led me down that path of getting into riffs and then being a part of that four-year dog boy campaign. So I, I would say it was um, it was probably that. And, you know, when you get into high school, you really have no idea who you are or the people around you. You've got all these, uh, I mean, you're a boy and you walk in and there's men walking around and you're just like, ah, shit. And so to find that one guy was was really awesome. And yeah. See, I, I grew facial hair very early, so I was one of the men walking around. Oh, so. yeah, I can't I can't grow facial hair at all. So, I mean, not even if I tried. That's one of the uh, the common experiences of, like, being into this stuff that I don't track with because I had a very quick growth spurt that then leveled out because I'm short now. I had a beard before everyone else. I had, as you guys can see, I had chest hair way before everyone else uh my my nickname when i was a freshman in high school was chewbacca because i was hairier than everyone else so right i i can't relate to the the being a late bloomer thing uh, i was an early bloomer but yeah i uh, i have no idea how this started but all through like maybe starting sixth or seventh grade all of my teachers didn't matter who they were they all called me mr craft they never called me by my first name. Every teacher is just Mr. Kraft, Mr. Kraft, Mr. Kraft. And so then, um, you know, my friends, they picked up on it and they would call me uh, Crafty or Velveeta Boy or various <laughs> different things like that, right? And then um, uh, maybe 10, 11 years ago, one of, uh, one of the people who I was broadcasting with uh, called me DJ Crafty. And it just stuck ever since, but I dropped the, the DJ part because that's pretentious. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there are very few discs to jockey in this world. Right. So it doesn't really... Exactly. Yeah. Now, the uh, the last question here before we jump into some 5e stuff. Uh, you've listened to the show enough to know that, uh, you know, this is coming up. The answer can right. be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. The Crafty Matt Craft, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Read the fucking Dungeon Master's Guide. There we go. That's, I mean, that's just it. So, I mean, I have I have it sitting right here, just in case we need to <laughs> reference it. But it's it's one of those it's one of those things where your five E game will improve a hundred percent if you just looked for your answers in there. Because if you have a question about five E and how to run a procedure, it's in the DMG. Just ask Max or anybody on the Legion of Myth server. I'm a dirty 5e apologist, but I can prove with screenshots that this stuff exists that nobody uses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with the introductions out of the way, the, the way I want to start this conversation about 5e, um, each of us are going to go through, and I'll let you start because you're the guest, we're going to list our five favorite things about 5e. But then we're also going to counter that with our five least favorite things about 5e. So 
Uh, what we'll do is kind of take it one and one. So if you want to start with your first favorite thing about 5e, uh, we'll begin there. Um, my favorite thing about 5e is the basic rules. Um, the fact that they are free, it takes every character from level 1 to 20, or every class, rather, from level 1 to 20, with a single archetype. There's no feats. There's no real multi-classing, even though there, there's maybe rules in there. But it is a complete system with just the basic rules, and I'm not talking the SRD, but you can play a game of Dungeons & Dragons for free using those rules. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's something that's going to come up. Once I start doing uh, short-form videos, that's something that actually comes up in, in one of my videos, is the fact that there are so many different companies that now have essentially a free version of the game, and... and uh, Wizards, to their credit, has made 5e one of those games. So the barrier to entry is very low for anyone who wants to kind of you know dip their toes in and see what this is all about. So that's a that's a good call out there. And you, what's your first one? So my first one is the advantage disadvantage system. Oh yeah, so that was going to be my uh, number <laughs> two. So, um, it it just makes things simple, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's, uh, and as far as game mastering goes, you don't have to really think about it. It's like the player sits there and, and he's picking a lock, he's using tools, he has his stethoscope out and the room is quiet. You're like, yeah, you can roll with advantage. You don't have to consult any tables or anything like that. It's just, it's fast. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, so much revolves around giving people that advantage or, or disadvantage. The conditions revolve around giving people advantage and disadvantage. Um, it, as a central mechanic on top of kind of the existing D&D infrastructure, the advantage system really is just a simple uh, and effective way to get across. You are having an easy time doing this or you're having uh, you know a real difficult time doing this. Right. Um, well, I, my number two is your number one. So what's your number two? Uh, so my number two here is it's easy to learn and it's easy to teach to other people. Uh, so, uh, but wouldn't that be the case with, with any role-playing game? Not necessarily. Um, and, and maybe this is my bias against like crunchy games, but I found that there are even some kind of rules light games that are a little bit hard to parse and a little hard to like get people to understand who have never played a role-playing game before. I haven't had that much of a problem getting people who've never rolled a D20 to play and understand kind of the, the mechanics around 5e. I taught my, my father, who is like the boomeriest boomer that ever boomered, to play fifth edition D and D in a matter of minutes. And he had a great time with it. So, I mean, that would be my number three is not ease of play, but the fact that it is the 900 pound gorilla in the room, mm -hmm. we often say that is a bad thing, but honestly it can be a good thing in yeah. that it's so readily available. There's so much stuff out there for it. And there's so many, teaching tools and different things that you can hand to players 
and they can go off and they can research their own. They can find videos for it. It's so readily accessible that it is the best gateway drug right now into role-playing mm-hmm. with the caveat that you, you do need to move on eventually. Yeah. Yeah, the first, the first time I made an attempt to get into role-playing games was during the 4E days, and I never actually played because I went, I want to play D&D. And so I started kind of looking into it. And everything I heard was just like, this edition of D&D is garbage. Just all all yeah. the hate spewed towards 4E. And I was just like, okay, maybe I don't need to play D&D right now. What about, uh, did you ever go into Pathfinder? Uh, no. No, oh, I okay. didn't know about Pathfinder. I, and again, that's just because... D&D is so monolithic. I was only familiar with the game in that I saw it on the shelf of the comic shop where I bought my comics and I played Heroclix and Warhammer 40k. So I knew that when people played this role-playing game because of media and because of, you know, just what people at the shop were playing, they're playing D&D. And so I didn't even think to look beyond D&D. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That, That does. So you're number three. Uh, my number three is that it's very modular. It's very easy to uh, take apart and put back together with the pieces rearranged. It's easy to graph things onto it. It is a very moldable, pliable system that you can do a lot with. Right. So my number four piggybacks off of that. The fact that there is so much third party out there I've often said that third party is going to be the savior of 5e. You can you can build up 5e or tear it down into its ba- most basic. And again, using the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's a lot of things in there that allow you to um, make your game more crunchy, harder, grittier, or just absolute bonkers gonzo. And so... Despite the fact that everybody says, oh, D&D shouldn't run everything, okay? It, within the realms of fantasy, it can run almost any kind of fantasy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it can even run, and I, I know this because I have actually played this, it can even run like space fantasy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I'll talk about that later with, as far as with one of my uh, uh, third-party recommendations is that um, it, space fantasy, you mean like... Uh, Starfinder kind of space fantasy, yeah. not mm-hmm. not hardcore like The Expanse or uh, Death in Space or something like that. Right? Yeah, not not hard sci-fi, but yeah. A good example of this, uh, Todd Moonbounce, who who's an old friend from when I was with uh, Valor Studios, he's very involved in the Star Wars Five E movement, and oh. Star Wars actually fits pretty well within the Five E ecosystem. Uh, yes, uh, sadly, I was burned on D20 Star Wars, so I can't, uh, for me, it's West End games or nothing. Right. Uh, it's the, 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 the die six or nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm not even talking like expanded and revised. I'm talking the original two books, the, the core book and the blue source book. That's it. So nothing after that. Mm-hmm. And he's going to yell at me if I don't mention it, but yes, D&D 5e can be used to play modern fantasy, especially if you take advantage of the products made by one Victor Gorchev, 
uh shill 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 bye 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 everyone go out and back his kickstarter when it launches i i heard yeah i heard that guy has a kickstarter so and uh he's occasionally on a couple other uh other podcasts i think he's going to be on yours right yes he is yes he is right. at the end of this yeah. month he will be on the show right there you go victor there's your plug uh the last one the last one would be that, um, and this is more personal, is that 5e got me back into um, tabletop gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, in in that, uh, if it wasn't for the salesperson running the Pathfinder game, I wouldn't have gone and looked, well, what's the current edition of, uh, of D&D? And that was right uh, when D&D Next had ended and they had released the core books. Uh, I still have first, first printings of, of my five uh, ebooks mm-hmm. and uh, and it was having been out of it for a decade or more the sense of wonder and awe that role-playing brought back to my hobbies was just it, I, I wish that I could go back uh, what is it oh god is like eight years now and uh, yeah. recapture that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I could go back and, and recapture that because now, now unfortunately, I'm jaded. I'm uh, I, I've been in the hobby long uh, again, long enough that you know I, I no longer see the wonder and awe, but mm-hmm. uh, all, just all of the uh, jaded bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's see. I'm on point number four. What, are are you on point number? No, four you're on well? five. You're on five now. Oh, I'm on five. Because I said, yeah. Right. I, well, I guess I. Well, no, I was on four. I just gave five, so you need to give two more. Okay. So my number four is that the game plays very quickly. Like the actual gameplay is pretty snappy, pretty breezy. If you have the right rail set up as the dungeon master, uh, it's very easy to kind of run a fast-paced game. There's not a lot to get you bogged down if you are on top of your players. Uh, I'm gonna have to disagree with that. That's actually one of my uh, one of my negatives about Five E. But okay. continue. And then my last point, um, and this this one might be a little bit controversial, and I'm actually going to undercut it <laughs> immediately uh, with my dislikes. But it is a good game uh, for making players feel powerful and badass. Yes, absolutely, yes, and. Um... I know why you're going to undercut that, and that's exact. That's one of my negatives as well. Gotcha. So, getting into the negatives now. Um, well, which, it's yeah. exact opposite of the reason that uh, I said that I like the system. So, basic, basic five E is just it's so clean and so perfect. But then you get into five E proper, and it just becomes so bloated. Yeah. How many how many races are there now? Way I, too many. Yeah, way too many. There's too many subclasses. Um, there's too many rules for you to take a dip into this or a dip into that, and then all of a sudden you're way overpowered. And honestly, a lot of the rules are written such that it can take advantage of this very power gamery thing. And unfortunately, it's up to the dungeon master to kind of rein that stuff in. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite rules, which unfortunately 
um, after Tasha's is no longer exists, but was uh, the player's handbook plus one. Is when you made a character, you made it with the player's handbook plus one other extra source, yeah. and that's it. So, and then Tasha's came in and the kind of consolidated everything from every other book. So everybody would just use player's handbook plus Tasha's and be done with it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and this gets into what my number two is. So I'll go ahead and say my number two is my number one. Uh, and that's, there's just too many goddamn options. Yes. Yes. Agreed. The, and, and this is from the perspective of someone who's played the game for a long time and someone who has had to bring someone into the hobby and, you know, show them the books, even just saying, let's focus on the player's handbook. Forget all this other stuff, because I know that's way too much. Just focusing on the player's handbook. There are too many choices, too many races, too many subclasses, too many feats. And what it comes down to is not only does it create analysis paralysis of what kind of character do I want to create here, it also makes for some very suboptimal, not quite bad choices. It's not like 3E or 3.5 and that there are outright wrong options. But if you choose just a couple, like, off-the-wall things, you've got a character that doesn't really hang with the rest of the party. So if those options suck, why are they there? Why even give that choice at all if it's just a bad choice to make? Right. And that goes into my number two, which is I, feats. I hate feats. Mm -hmm. I hate multiclassing. There's a reason why the player's handbook says they are options, um, is that they the right combination of feats can cripple a dungeon master's campaign or even the right number of feats with a particular class. Um, one of those classes being the ranger. The ranger, as it's written in the player's handbook, is awful. Yeah. And with natural explorer, if you had a adventure that took place mostly in a forest and that ranger decided to take forest as their home base or their natural explorer, that you were done. You, they would never get lost. They would never run out of food. They would never run out of water. And they would always make it to their destination unharmed because of this one option that was in the, uh, uh, in the ranger that just completely destroyed gameplay. Uh, another one, of course, being uh, Sentinel. If you use Sentinel with Polearm Master, you might as well never um, hit a, a particular player because mm -hmm. the the enemy will stop ten feet before the before the player, and the, every time that they try to enter the range of the player, they'll take a, an attack of opportunity and then get stopped by Sentinel again. It's just it's stupid. There are some options that are just it makes the game unplayable. Yeah, absolutely. And I will answer Indigo Dragon in talking about my second point. My second point here is uh, 5e makes you too powerful too quickly. And Yes. And, and to answer Indigo Dragon, you feel like a badass because it's very easy to survive until 5th level, and then past 5th level, you're basically unstoppable. So yeah, you are playing with training wheels and that everything's kind of nerfed to get you to that point. 
but once you get past five uh fifth level and even it's worse once you get past tenth level at that point you're you're not just a superhero you're like a powerful superhero you're you're like thor or superman at tenth level Max from uh, Legion of Myth always says that uh, it is a hero to superhero. Yeah. And I agree with that. Um, your characters start off with, uh, su- I mean, some subclasses already start off with their archetype mm-hmm. or their subclass, which just makes them insanely powerful. The Gloom Stalker, uh, Ranger. I, I, play a lot, I play a lot of Rangers. I play a lot of Clerics. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the Gloom Stalker Ranger is a death machine at level one. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's it, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, level uh, at level three, right? Which is still tier one. That's when you're supposed to be fighting uh, goblins and rats and like little kobolds and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, a gloom stalker ranger could take on a young dragon easy. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but for that, it does, um, it does lead down that path of, of being a great introductory game because you can be super powerful at the beginning. And I think that wizards did the reason that they, they made characters powerful at the beginning was so that you didn't have to get three, four, five levels in before you had the quote unquote fun, Mm -hmm. not realizing that, 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 um, uh, that initial period of playing a role-playing game ends very quickly that that honeymoon phase yeah and then you want it then you want a challenge Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and i mean max says uh hero to superhero i call it the medieval justice league that's that's my phrase um but yeah there is no sense of challenge to uh the the gameplay of 5e past a certain level and you know i've played a gloomstalker ranger and you're not lying uh, you're you're functionally invisible, uh, standing still. If not at third level, then by fifth level, uh, you you can't even be seen by magical means. I'm pretty sure at that point. And then if you take that one dip into thief, oh man, sneak attack. Yeah, yeah. You, or you know, it's that it's that life cleric that takes one dip into druid. <laughs> and you know the good berries the, mm-hmm. the the good berry debate you know yeah, yeah absolutely um you had mentioned and this is my third point you had mentioned that 5e was fast and easy to run mm-hmm. and i'm here to tell you it's not yep. <laughs> it's not fast um when uh when you get into combat the game bogs down so much it's so incredibly slow that you that's when you start having players like look around the room or jump on their phone uh, because every turn is a slog to get through. And especially when you have a lot of enemies, mm-hmm. um, you know, just take the first encounter of uh, of Lost Minds of Fandelver uh, it's, uh, goblin arrows. Right. You have four goblins and possibly four uh, adventurers those goblins are going to fire and hide and it's up to the players to find out where they are. So they have to do their spot checks and and perception checks. And it just, it slows everything down. It just does. It's, it's a slow game in combat. 
yeah, the, in time. And I should qualify what I meant by it. it's fast to run. It's fast to roll your dice, add your modifiers. That part, it, you don't have to pull out your, your Texas Instruments graphing calculator uh, to, to add up all your all your crap just to like take one attack like you do in some games. That's what I meant by fast. Right. But you're absolutely right that especially you know, like with hit points being what they are in 5e it it takes forever just to to kill an enemy and that's why uh like and and we're going to talk about this later but stuff like 5e hardcore mode takes away your constitution modifier to your hit points because that way you're not just trading blows back and forth uh ad nauseum just to get through one combat right yeah it, it, it's a slog I mean, you go up against a, you go up against an adult uh, dragon or anything. It's like oh, takes forever. Uh, to answer L here, I don't think it's faster than like basic D and D. So that you know, you make a good point there. It's faster but, than Pathfinder. I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So, so my number three is five E material contradicts itself. And I say that it, it's not just like errata comes out and says what we meant to say here was actually this, but it's like you have the core three books, which in my mind, that should be like your foundation. This is what the game is built on is player's handbook, dungeon master's guide, monster manual. But then you have uh Xanathar's Guide and then Tasha's Cauldron, which just go, that stuff in the player's handbook in the DMG, nah. Don't worry about that. It, that especially happens in Tasha's, but with Tasha's, most of what people are talking about is three pages in, mm. in that whole book. Yeah. And at the very top of it, it says optional. These are optional rules. And that, that's a big thing that people don't understand. And, and that is... That is my point yeah. in that um, that would be my point number four is that people don't understand that there are optional rules. Mm. So many players out there want to use every single player option that is available, but will not allow the dungeon master to use the options provided in the DMG. Options such as the insanity tables or the critical injury tables. Um they they just don't want that because or they don't want to use the encumbrance rules or tracking arrows there's so there's there is this um uh, mentality with 5e that well 5e should be um i i don't like that rule so i'm going to throw it out cuz it's not fun rather than playing with the rule for a little while and realizing that yeah that little f unfun thing like tracking encumbrance it may not be fun, but once you get to that dragon horde and have to figure out how to get all that shit back, that's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, there's this weird thing that happens kind of with the discourse around 5e. Uh, I, I remember when Tasha's came out and people online were saying the, the race stuff where essentially all races are reduced to blobs of gray goo that you can mold into whatever you feel like they should be when people on Twitter were like, it says optional. You can't do that at my table. People would lose their minds 
over. Yeah. Like the, the concept of rule zero is lost on so many people that even if it doesn't say optional in, uh, you know, next to the rule, the, the whole thing, you know, th this is all arbitrary. Even the stuff that's printed and published is arbitrary. And if your GM decides to do it differently, then that's how you're doing it at their table. That is lost on so many people. And, and even when it says optional in there, they think because it's printed in a book that Watsi published with a D and ampersand and a D on it, that it's uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians, as my fifth grade teacher used to say. Right. And what's funny is, is at the very beginning of the player's handbook, it specifically says that the dungeon master is the arbiter of the game. Yeah. They are the, they're the rule maker. They, um, if the rules are a guide, but it's still the dungeon master's table. Mm -hmm. And so many players that now they almost bully the dungeon master. Yeah. I often say that, that, um, in this uh, uh, in this post Tasha's era, that dungeon masters are now uh, service providers. They are not players at the table, and, and it's it it saddens me. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh, go ahead. Oh no, you go first. Oh, just I was going to say. Uh, now we get to number fours. What what would be your number four for this? Oh, I I already did my number four. It's your okay. number four. My number four was the uh, was was the player options. Gotcha. All right. So my number four, and we've already talked in and around this. Uh, my number four is the community, and this is <laughs> uh, this is the big one. This is the reason why we all kind of pile on five e uh, at times because. The community that's been built up around 5e is full of, one, people who don't actually play 5e, two, people who think they know how 5e works, think they know how the game runs, despite, one, not having played 5e, and then, three, they then want to tell you what you should and should not do at your table, even though they've never met you, they've never played at your table, and they never will play at your table. It's this... It's the the tyranny of the omnipotent moral busybody. I know I've made this reference several times. Uh, it's a great C.S. Lewis quote about how it's better to live under robber barons because the robber baron sleeps. Occasionally he's satisfied with his ill-gotten gains, but the omnipotent moral busybody will never leave you alone because they are bothering you with the approval of their own conscience. So the the... People who I, and to answer L here, I don't think there's an RPG community myself because communities are inherently small and local. Um, but the people who identify as being in the 5E community, community with air quotes, for those of you listening, uh, they are some of the like worst people to interact with because of how fanatical they are. Um. Uh that does exist in other communities as well. Yes. Um, look at the look at the Bro SR. <laughs> yes, the Bro SR uh, or the the, uh, uh, the the priors of Gygax, uh, yeah. who lettered the law of one e. But th the issue is is that because five e is that nine hundred pound gorilla in the room, that just means that there are so many more moral busybodies, as you said, to tell you how to game. And one thing that 
we try to get across to these people is is that is is when we tell them that hey you know it's my table my rules is we're not trying to shut them out we're just trying to say hey i'm going to play the way that i want to play you play the way that you want to play and i'm good once you start telling me how to play my table that's when i'm going to come back and and uh take a keen eye at what you're doing in the community and like you said, come to find out, a lot of these people play theory D and D. They're not actually playing D and D. L, if we start defining what the Bro SR is, then we're going to get into uh, all of my bugbears about the OSR, just kind of as a as a whole, uh, and and the infighting that occurs within it, and how it reminds me very badly of. Uh, Another group that I'm a part of, that being libertarians. So we're not we're not gonna. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not going to mess with. I'm not gonna knock over that hornet's nest because it'll just be me ranting, and we won't actually get into defending five e. Um, so that would be my number five. My number five is that people don't read the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rules are the rules are more than a guideline. Um, I mean, you can go onto a football field and play football, but then you say, "Ah, you know what? I don't like, um, I don't like the fact that there's downs. I should be able to drive forward for as long as it takes until I reach the end zone. Um, so we're going to throw out the downs or, um, we're going to throw out the uh, lateral pass. You know, it's, it's, these are rules are there to govern how you play. And from that governess comes the fun but specifically people don't people they don't read the rules or they say that the rules just don't exist the 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 biggest thing that i notice that people do is they'll walk into a room in game and go i roll a perception check what do i see and that's not what the rules say right so so right here on page 178 of the player's handbook so everybody has this it says finding a hidden object When your character searches for a hidden object, such as a secret door or trap, the DM typically asks, that's the most important part, they ask, if they're not being told, uh, you to make a wisdom or perception check. So such a check could be used to find hidden details or other information and clues that you may have otherwise overlooked. Because the second part of that is in most cases, you need to describe where you are looking in order for the DM to determine your chance for success. Right. For example, a key is hidden beneath a set of folded clothes in the top drawer of a bureau. You tell the DM that you pace around the room looking at the walls and the furnitures for clues. You have no chance of finding the keys regardless of your wisdom check result. That's in the book. And yet people don't do that. They just walk into a room and they just say, I roll wisdom, I roll perception, or my passive perception is 15. What do I see? They just, that it's the biggest thing for me. And the biggest argument that I get online with people is that the, is, is the rules are there to govern the game so that fun can emerge. Yeah. Because when when you don't follow rules, it's anarchy, and then that you wonder why your games fall apart in six sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the opposite corollary to what I was saying last time I was on Legion of Myth when I was talking about 
how role-playing games lean more towards the narrative side, the simulation side, the uh, the rules, the structure, has to be there as well. It's, um, and I don't know how everyone feels. I, I, I am an adherent of Jordan Peterson, but his... His two books right now are about avoiding the excess of chaos and the excess of order. So that's where I feel like role-playing and most things in life come in, is you have to avoid the excesses of both, and the rules are important to keep everything reined in as far as uh, the chaos of uh, people just kind of going off in their own direction uh, is concerned. Yeah, yeah and it's just... Uh... Read the manual. Read the yeah. books. The, the rules are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. So that, that's all I can say. That That's why it's on my shirt. Yeah. Uh, well, not, you know, not literally. But. Absolutely. So you're number five. My number five, and this is a, this is purely like a personal preference thing. There is too much magic in and around all things in 5e. You oh, can, yeah. No, that's a good one. You can run low magic 5e it involves cutting a lot of things out but you you can do it however there are certain classes character types that should not have any magic involved uh i don't like that the ranger has spells i know that traditionally they've kind of always had at least druid or priest spells i don't like it a ranger is a man of the woods uh i don't like that fighters have Spider subclasses have spells. Yeah, fighters can cast spells. I don't like... Again, this is me kind of attacking the foundations here. I think bards should be a subclass of rogue. I don't think they should have spells at all. Yeah. Going back to... uh, uh, Was that... That was first edition that it was a subclass, right? I think so. Yeah. So somebody in chat will correct me and then call me fraud. Hmm. And I know that in... I think traditionally, traditionally bards were made intentionally like impossible to get to because you had to uh, take five levels of fighter and then like five levels of thief and then two levels of druid or something like that. And then you could start leveling as a bard. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's another thing that that doesn't exist in 5e is restrictions. Right. There's there's no. There's no restrictions, except one. There is one restriction, and again, nobody really follows that when it comes to multiclassing, is that you? there are prime requisites for multiclassing. Mm-hmm. And you have to be a 13 in your prime requisite for the current class you're in and a 13 prime requisite in the class that you're going into. And everybody just ignores that. They ignore it. And they just, oh, I'm going to multi-class all over the place. I'm going to make a character with one level in everything. And you can't, unless you have over a 13 in everything, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But nobody does that. And the reason they don't do that, and I'm going to keep harping on this, is because, oh, it's not fun. It's not fun to to have restrictions. And it's like, yes, it is. It's so much fun to have restrictions. When uh, Imagine the stories that you're going to tell when you're traveling from, uh, you're traveling from, from Waterdeep 
to Fandolin and you run out of food and you're having to forage and your player, you know, he's the ranger, but he misses that boar and that boar runs into a cave and then you go into the cave and there's trolls in that cave. That is a story to tell, but because people skip travel, or they skip encumbrance, they skip food tracking, these, these little emergent story things have been lost to the 5e community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Maliki, uh, Castles and Crusades is on my list of things to check out, so at some point I will be getting around to that. But Maliki, we're defending 5e here, yes, even though it doesn't sound like we are. <laughs> so to, to get into the defense of 5e... Uh, something that you kind of approached me with as we were crafting this episode is you believe, and, and I think have you know plenty of evidence to back this up, that there are essentially three distinct eras of 5e. So yes. if, you, if you want to outline those for us and talk about how they kind of play with each other and feed into each other, I think that's a good place to kind of continue this conversation. All those notes up here real quick. So the three eras of 5e are D&D Next, which lasts from before 2014, the before the release of 5e, to about 2017, 2018. Then comes the critical role era of 5e, which then leads into the post-Tasha's era of 5e. And when taking a look at the evidence to support this, um, even though Critical Role really did start in 2015, it didn't start seeing a rise in followers and channel views until about 20 or uh, yeah, about 2018 in July of 2018, mm-hmm. and then exploded in COVID, which w- with the Matt Mercer effect, which I know everybody hates that when they're talking about 5e, but there there really is a Matt Mercer effect. That led to some design decisions that went into uh, Tasha's, and then you have this whole post-Tasha's, which is where I really think the community gets very, very toxic towards each other. Yeah. And one table can't play uh, the same way as another table. And they just clash against each other. And if you're not using all the rules from Tasha's, then you're a horrible person. Or if you're not using this particular option, you're a horrible person. Uh, Or if I decide that I want to limit my game to the basic four uh, races of uh, Elf, Dwarf, Human, and Halfling, then I'm a horrible person for some reason. Um, And what what we see is, of course, we see that the... uh, in um in the D&D next era is the player's handbook monster manual dungeon master's guide comes out and then a few years later Volo's guide to monsters which we know in post Tasha's era has had its uh lore completely stripped out because it was problematic but it wasn't back in 2016 when it was written and I still have yet to figure out why that is other than Again, you have these eras of when D&D Next came out, it was a Forgotten Realms game. Yes, you could play in other things, but it was Forgotten Realms. And it wasn't until 2019 and um, uh, Ravnica's Guide to, or uh, yeah, Ravnica's Guide, that they started exploring other universes and things like that. So 
Um, I, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but the um, you can you can even see this in their design the design decisions of their adventures, right? So you have, of course, uh, Lost Minds of Fandelver, which I truly believe is going to go down as a D&D classic. It's going to be a classic just as, um, say, uh, Into the Borderlands is, or Keep on the Borderlands is a classic, or Isle of Dread is a classic. Fandelver will be a classic that people will talk about for years after even Wizards of the Coast is done with Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, but go ahead. oh, just just to piggyback on that, Fandelver really is kind of this generation's answer to against the cult of the reptile god. So yeah, yeah, and um, or even like um, uh, what was the uh, a Red Hand of Doom was yeah. another one, you know, for for third edition. I don't know what came out of fourth edition because I wasn't playing at the time, but. Uh, when you look at you look at uh, Rise of Tiamat, Princes of the Apocalypse, Out of the Abyss, Curse of Strahd, Storm King's Thunder, Tomb of Annihilation, that all happened in that D and D next era. Those are very classic adventures. Yeah. Um, I truly believe that Storm King's Thunder gets undue shit for being a bad adventure because it doesn't flesh out any of the descriptions of places or things that you're supposed to do, but it's a guidebook. It's one of those old classic adventure books where it's just going to present you with a bunch of information and you have to sit down as a dungeon master and kind of stitch it together for a game for your table and your players. Um, same thing with uh, Tomb of Annihilation, which is a combination of Isle of Dread and Tomb of Horrors at the very end of it. But it's a it's a sandbox adventure, and even um, even uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, right? It's a fantastic ad- uh, adventure. It is a it is a mega dungeon, mm-hmm. but nobody really talks about it because there's really it doesn't handhold you through through everything it just, and that bothers me a little bit so when it it isn't until the critical role era that you really start seeing the hand hold the adventures mm-hmm. the adventures or the the uh, wizards of the coast design choices to follow a book or a movie uh, before that the adventures were more sandboxy a little less handholdy yeah, the the Critical Role era, and I've not seen a single episode of Critical Role. I will not start anytime soon, probably ever. I have nothing against the people on Critical Role, but the worst thing that Critical Role did was it made people forget that this is a game and think that it's a TV show. Yes. And every single game that's kind of come out of that all the people's attitudes towards how the game is run and even how now watsi designs their products it's like they're designing for something where you can create your own stream and streams make up a very small percentage of the games that are played out there this is a game for people at their tables and it should be a game for people at their tables well, look at the design decisions now for D&D 1 by making everything digital and having their own virtual tabletop. They're, they're, uh, as you said, it's, it's, going more, it's, it's going more streaming. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm here to tell you that in, in the critical role era, 
there was a couple of products that were stealth released. I, I had them sitting next to me, but I don't anymore. And look them up. One of them is the Wilderness Kit. The Wilderness Kit is a fantastic DM screen. First, the art is top-notch. I don't know who the artist is, and I don't know what basement they locked him in, but they need to get that artist back because the art on the Wilderness Kit is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it includes water trackers and ration trackers, uh, item trackers. It includes procedures for hex crawling, going from hex to hex and getting lost. Uh, D&D used to be about getting lost. And then, like, we were going to, we were supposed to be heading to the next town, but we got lost and we ended up at this uh, uh, Chthonic temple instead. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's mark that down on the map and let's get back to it, you know. Um, so, but, and, and why they stealth released this product, it was in 2020 that it came out. Why they did that, I don't know, but it, it has weather tables on it. It has random encounter tables and it has morale tables how uh, how far away a random encounter happens um, uh, and sight lines and surprise and and it, all of these things that that I remember from my BX days um, and Beckby days of wow this is again that feeling of wonder and awe um, but they didn't market it it came out at the I think it came out at the same time as um, uh, was it uh, was it Witchlight? Uh, no, it was Explorer's Guide to Wildermount. It oh, came yeah. out that that same time, and you can see the design, um, the design shift to again, like you were saying, more of a a streaming market. Um, uh, I don't want to say railroady market, but it is. It's a railroad. Yeah. Um, in adventure design, instead of giving uh, dungeon masters tools to create their own adventures. <laughs> which is what I think Wilderness Guide did. The second one is the Dungeon Kit. Again, fantastic art. But the one thing the Dungeon Kit had was something that I haven't seen in forever, which was Geomorphs, right? <laughs> At little tiny cards that had on one side, it was one uh, type of terrain. On the other side, it was another. And you would just randomly um, shuffle them and deal them out. And then that was your dungeon for the night. Right, and then you could design your your adventure around there, and it was random encounters and procedures for dungeon crawling. Okay, these things that the OSR say, oh yeah, no, we need uh, uh, we need dungeon crawling uh, procedures, we need hex crawling procedures. That's what makes D and D fun. Well, I'm I'm here to tell you those things are in Five E, yeah. but you got to look for them. They're there. But again, go back to your dungeon master's guide. Right? Yeah. Read read the dungeon master's guide because they're there. Yeah, and, and what you're getting at here is the really the core problem with 5e as it stands now. At the beginning, it was one thing, and then somewhere in the middle, right around, I guess in response to Critical Role's popularity and kind of jumping on all these different licensed properties that were also very heavily tied in with D&D, you know, stuff like Rick and Morty and Stranger Things. Yes. COVID and, had a big thing to do with it too. Yeah, and and, and COVID as well. At, at that point, Wizards made a hard pivot. And I think the reason no one ever talked about those two uh, wilderness and dungeon kits is they didn't fit with the new direction. And they weren't something that, you know, these influencers were using on their streams because they didn't need to. They're streaming. It's right. It's... 
wilderness exploration in the stream is very tedious and boring because it's meant to be experienced. It's not meant to be watched because it's a game. It's not it's not a show. It's not a movie. Right. Right. And and that is also why now you have so many um, uh, people that they want to play elves, but they don't want to play elves or they right. they want to play that orc or half orc, but they're not really playing a half orc. They're they're just they're playing a they're playing a race in uh, or they're playing a human in a funny skin suit. Right. It's there's in the stripping out of the lore of Volos, um, you lose this again, the sense of awe and wonder like. Uh, picking up one of those books and, and reading it, it's like, oh man, there's so many ideas. You know the uh, uh, why the you know why the demons are fighting the the devils. Now that all of that stuff is gone, it's just you have demons and devils. And yes, some dungeon master can put a demon and a devil in the same in the same uh, encounter, right? But and that's fine. That if that works for your homebrew table, that's okay. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, there's a there's a certain history that comes with D and D that I don't think is being respected. Mm -hmm. But it's that it's that history that that gives the game its uh, identity. Yeah. But everybody wants to think that identity is what skin suit your character is wearing, or what backstory your character has made, or what. Um, uh, uh, what class abilities, and then that's just not that's that's just not how it is. Mm -hmm. Indigo Dragon makes a good point here in in talking about this hard pivot that Watsy made. Um, kind of the de-emphasis of Mike Merles, who shepherded Five E when it first came out, and you know replacing him essentially with Jeremy Crawford as the 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 Pope of D and D, as it were. Uh, I guess co-pope with matt mercer uh based on the way people act uh that really also brought about a change in the community and the way that people looked at the game because mike merles uh is a very had a very old school eye in designing 5e and basically 5e was born of the OSR movement that sprung up around 3.5 and 4E, uh, the original OSR movement. Uh, but then once things kind of took off in a different direction, that was no longer part of their vision, and they basically gave them the boot. Right. And then it became, um, what uh, what Saturday morning cartoon can we make today? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, 5e went uh, 5e went from it wasn't pulpy fantasy but it was certainly high fantasy. It wasn't Tolkien fantasy either, but it was high, it went from from high fantasy heroic fantasy to Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. In somewhere in the span of critical role to post Tasha's. Yep. And and I think the core of what we're getting at here and and we basically said as much multiple times if you look at 5e with just kind of the essential products, so and when it comes to essential products, I will say uh, Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual, and then I think Volos of the yes. expansions. Volo, because of that lore, because of the kind of explanations of this is the psychology and the uh, the social makeup of these major monsters, 
those are your four kind of main source books. And then um, the the kits that you mentioned with yeah. those tools, you can run an old school flavored game. You can run like I was talking about, like OSR 5e. You can do so with some of the great third party products as well, uh, which we'll get to towards the end of the episode here. But it's this other stuff. It's this extra bloat that's come about essentially in response to people going nuts on Twitter that has made 5e uh, go downhill. And it's that stuff that's kind of that's dragging the community down and, and dividing the people who play 5e into their various camps where we are now. And everyone just kind of hates each other. Even yeah. people who play 5e hate other people who play 5e because of where they draw lines. Um, I I would add um, I would add uh, Xanathar's Guide in there for because Xanathar's Guide is a collection of um, of of unearthed arcana. Yeah, right. It's a collection of bonus rules, and again, everything in there says optional. You don't have to use it, but some of the tables that are in there are are really useful tables. Uh, they, they just are. Um, and also for the, for the player that's looking for uh, domain play and setting up a home base, uh, give acquisitions incorporated a look. Um, it, the rules in there are for setting up a franchise of acquisitions incorporated. But if you strip out, if you strip out the fact that it's uh, a Penny Arcade's Acquisitions Incorporated actual play, and you just look at it, okay, so this is what it's going to take to build my uh, uh, build my stronghold up, and then all of the little things that go into it. Th- that book is also very, very good. And again, it happens right there at the. That book came out right there at the beginning of Critical Role's success, and is one of those books that Watsy just kind of just went, okay, well, we're done with that. That's okay. another thing that bothers me. Oh man, sorry. I don't mean to ramble, but it's like it's like uh, um, Watsy sits there and goes, "Hey man, you got to be really excited for this product. This product is like the shit. Um, buy this product, pre-order this product, and and I swear to God, you know, we're this is going to be like the best product ever." And then on launch day, they go, "All right, done with that. Let's let's get them hyped for the next thing." It's yeah, it, it's the Google model. Where yeah. it's all about the launch. It's all about the launch, and then once it launches, forget it. It's don't worry about supporting it. All that matters is a new product came out, and that has led to real quality issues. Um, again, I I talk about Storm King's Thunder, right? Uh, probably one of the most hated modules for Five E, but I think people look at it wrong. They they don't look at it as a guidebook. They're trying to read it like it's a a module from beginning to end. It's a story from beginning and end, right? But look at all the information that's packed in those pages as opposed to all of the information that's packed into Spelljammer, which is the latest release, right? Spelljammer was hyped up so much by Wizards of the Coast, and then when it landed, it landed with such a wet thud that they quickly swept it under the rug and they really haven't talked about Spelljammer. Now they're hyping up Dragonlance, which I'm afraid that Dragonlance is going to be the same wet thud because they're going to put enough nostalgia bait in there to make old people such as me, such as Max, such as you go out and buy the book and then go, man, what did I just waste my money on? Yeah. 
Whereas before, I was actually I actually looked forward to new uh, new releases. the 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 last big release that I uh, was excited for was Avernus and um, the Descent into Avernus, only because I'm a, also a big Mad Max fan yeah. and driving hell cars around and throwing soul coins into furnaces and hearing them scream as your uh as your car gets more power i did an entire uh campaign uh based around just uh traveling around avernus and uh pitting um bahamut against uh, tiamat <laughs> yeah absolutely but again this goes into one of the biggest problems with the way that D&D is being managed now, and you see this with tons of brands now. All the major brands are like this, whether it's uh, Disney with Marvel and Star Wars, uh, you know, Warner Brothers is trying this with DC Comics. Everything now has to be this lifestyle brand, and whenever you hear something touted as a lifestyle brand, what they mean is a religion. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I'll be honest— when when I jump back into role playing, I fell victim to that. You know, um, anything that uh, anything that came out, it's like, oh man, you know, they've got this. Uh, they have these official D and D dice. I got to get those. And they have the the D and D. They've got the the D and D dice roller. I got to get that. Or they've got the D and D flamethrower. I got to get that. You know, it's it's uh, you know marketing. Uh, so so I I fell victim to it early on before I realized that. I, I didn't use this stuff when, you know, I was uh, a youth. I don't need this stuff again. And but you're right. It has become a a lifestyle brand. It's uh, uh I'm wearing the shirt. I'm drinking out of the mug. Um, I have D20 stickers on my car. Yeah. Um, you, you know the the first thing that uh, I say to people when I meet them is is hi. I'm Mr. Smith and I play D and D. It's it's that that you wear. Oh, you don't even need to to tell people you play D and D because I mean you keep uh you you keep a a, a tube of dice hanging around your neck. People just know because you know that's that's your thing. You're the D and D guy. Yep, yep. You've got your you've got your stringy long hair and your your leather wrist cuffs uh, yeah. because you can pull off that look too, don't you know? Um, right, right. <laughs> See, I I don't fault Matt Mercer. I really don't. And I think that people who watch Critical Role and watch Matt Mercer specifically get the wrong lessons from Matt yeah. Mercer. The lesson that you should get from Matt Mercer is listen to your players, like look at them and listen to them, react to how, what they're reacting to and be enthusiastic about it. Yep. Right. Whereas I think everybody else gets this, uh, this idea that I have to be this master story crafter. I have to be able to tell all of these narratives. I have to be able to do this. I have to be able to weave together this uh, twisted story that's wheels within wheels. And that's just not, that's not how I, at the end of every episode, I have to shock people with a cliffhanger. That's, that's what people are getting from Matt Mercer and they shouldn't. What they should be getting is, is that Matt Mercer, um, he, he provides a environment where fun and interesting things can happen. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the other thing that people need to realize, and I, I think a lot of the people who are watching this right now know this. So this is for anyone who is in the 5e world 
uh, but doesn't, you know, you're starting to feel disillusioned by everything. Watsi is going the way that all of these major companies are going. The the Star Wars fans that are upset that Star Wars isn't what it was, they're falling victim to this as well. Uh, companies have taken on the strategy that Crafty described to me as all the money in the world. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, the it happened right around COVID or mm-hmm. so. Um, and, or as it may have, you even said Apple, so it may have happened even before that is this idea that Wizards of the Coast or any corporation needs to have all of the money in the world. They have, a, and this happens in, in publicly traded companies with boardrooms is they look and they see, okay, we have billions of dollars or millions of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they're like, but those people over there they're not playing our game. How do we get them engaged with our product? Mm-hmm. And so they go and they poll them and the people say, well, we don't really like playing role-playing games because of this or that. Then the boardroom changes it. So to bring those people in, not realizing that they're leaving their other customers behind, but they don't care because they already have the, they already have that money. They're going after that money. Mm-hmm. And, then it just becomes this cycle of a heroin addict chasing the dragon. Yeah. The boardroom is constantly chasing all the money in the world. They are not happy with the customer base that they have. They need to have everybody playing their game. And what I mean by everybody is I'm talking even the people who just absolutely don't care about role-playing. Well, we're going to make you care about role-playing. Just tell us how to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and the way that they do it is very insidious, and it kind of gets into this ideological capture that you see all over all media. Just the the way that people talk about every little piece of media as if it's the most important thing in history, uh, and and how if you don't like this particular thing, you are. It's not just that you know this isn't for you. It's you're a bad person. You're evil yeah. if you like this but don't like this. And you don't want to be evil, right? So you, you want to stay on board. They they are constantly changing the product so that it's not just not for you, it's not for anyone. Because once they feel like they have the money of the new audience, they're going to abandon them and you know keep chasing the right. dragon, like you said. But the way they go about it is this like crusader... Uh, Spanish Inquisition mentality of if you're not fully on board with every new change we're going to make, uh, you know, yesterday's yesterday's good Catholic is today's heretic, as it were. So they're going to burn you at the stake now. And it doesn't matter if how much money you've given to this machine, it's going to roll over you the same way it rolls over everyone. So stop giving them well, your to money. Me- to be fair, I don't think it's Wizards of the Coast necessarily doing that, at least not the boardroom. Because uh, in a publicly traded company, the one thing that you don't want to do is you is you don't want to piss off somebody enough to where they stop spending money. Right. And there's enough fools out there that will spend their money on anything that has 5E on it because it's 5E. Yep. Um, and w- but what the boardroom listens to is they don't listen to the right people. The boardroom will see people um, 
uh, crying on Twitter or Facebook or even in game stores and conventions that, well, this this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. And in boardroom thinking, in corporate thinking, it's if this is a problem, then they're not spending money. We have to change the problem so they can spend the money. Mm -hmm. And that is the dragon that keeps getting chased, is, is that there are some people that have... There are some people that have a problem that will never be fixed. It will never make them happy. And and I've being a salesman, you have to realize that because uh, I'm a car salesman, which is probably the worst kind of salesman there is. Um, <laughs> but it, it, eventually, when you when you know somebody comes in and takes a look at your car, you, you know you can either you could either accept the fact that they don't like your car. Right, or you can spend all day with them and then miss the person coming in the door who wants your car, mm-hmm. and that's what's happening to Watsi right now. Is Watsi is so focused on the people who don't want the car that they're missing the two or three sales of the people that they can actually make, yeah, and the money that they can actually collect, mm-hmm. and that is it's it's that weird backwards corporate think. And it somebody needs to tell Watsi that. I'm sure they have. But again, boardroom mentality is I already have your money. I want that money. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think part of it and part of the reason why it ends up taking on the the bent that I described, the the kind of religious inquisition bent, is Watsi is turning to uh these ideologues basically and saying you're the ones who need or the, you know the boardroom saying you you are on twitter you seem plugged into all this you change it you get this money for us and it's those people who are driving the uh the really nasty part of it cuz they've been given way too much power over uh this giant uh brand this giant all encompassing brand that is now essentially being used as a platform for a crusade. Right. Um, and it's, again, it's that fallacy of I'm listening to my customers. Yeah. And I keep telling everybody this, that everybody's all, well, Watsi is a, is a, is a quote unquote woke company or they're social justice warriors. I don't believe that. I, I mean, there are, there are probably members in Watsi that are, but at the very top, Watsi is owned by Hasbro that has investors that they have to cater to. Yep. And those investors want all the money in the world. And that trickles down to, well, who is the loudest and most vocal group? It's the ones on Twitter. It's the ones on Facebook or Tumblr or Instagram. And so you, you have to pivot to try to capture those people. Now, much like Doctor Who... And I, I use Doctor Who as an example of this because 10 years ago, you had Tiaboos everywhere. People would be wearing, you know, the they would be wearing the, the suit or they would have the little TARDIS. I know, I know. They are on the, the car. My other, my other car is a TARDIS, right? And the reason for that is, is because they had a couple of hot doctors, you know, uh, Matt Smith and various other, you know, they had this uh, young redhead that was on there and it was all of the rage, right? Well, then what happened? Okay. Those people left the show. 
the Tiabus had nothing left to mine from the lifestyle that was Doctor Who, and they all left. And now BBC is trying to look and, and scan and like, okay, well, well, where do we go from here? You know, well, I guess we have to go back to our base. We have to go back to our fans because those people never left. And I see that happening with uh, Dungeons and Dragons eventually. Yeah. And I'm already starting to see that happen with one d and I'll give you a great example, and I'm sure that he's watching, but Scott's son, okay? His son is not happy with one d and His son is a diehard of uh, 5e. And uh, there's a couple of uh, th- there's there's a couple of videos out there where Scott's going over the one D and D play test, and his son and his friend rip it apart. Mm-hmm. And so I have this feeling that when one D and D happens, Watsy is really going to see that. Oh man, okay, we put in this new doctor, and nobody likes it. <laughs> you know, we 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 changed it too much. We we uh, we made metachlorians you know yeah. it's it's all of this stuff where where it's like oh we went w- one bridge too far and they're going to have to pivot back to back to their base and i i'm waiting for those days to to be honest with you because i i still enjoy uh i still enjoy dungeons and dragons even if people like max say that we're playing you know commie role playing game you know 7345 mm-hmm. you know it's but i i enjoy it it's and and I enjoy um, bringing people to my five E table. Yeah, the, the Scott's kid is the a five E grognard is the term right. that I've been hearing now. Yeah, <laughs> but the the reason to to clarify for everyone out there, the reason I made the gun to my head gesture when he mentioned the Tia booze because that was high school for me, and I was oh. right in the center of that because I was a nerd in high school ten years ago. So the Doctor Who, Tiaboo stuff, that was super who lock. That was all kind of mixed in with the stuff that I was getting into. And I have constant cringe flashbacks of the like 16 year old girls that I was hanging out with when I was 16. Uh, just talking about jammy Dodgers and a whole bunch of British stuff they never actually understood. Right. Yeah. So th- that yeah. was like the peak of like cringe high school for me. And so that was my my gun to my head gesture there, and because I think that's where we are with 5e right now. Yeah. Yes, we're at that. We're at that that cringe level. But honestly, it's going to be it's going to be uh, kids and like Scott's kid who is um, is is going to be the uh, the savior of D&D because they're going to be the ones who are buying the products nest and, and going to tell uh, Watsy that, Hey, no, we, we don't want this. Right. This is, this is not the direction that we want to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now to kind of round out our conversation here and bring it back to some of the positives of five E. Uh, one thing that we mentioned is there is a lot of good third party stuff that works really well with five E and really is transformative for 5e. It makes 5e a different experience, but still, uh, you know, one that's very much worth playing and worth exploring. So let's talk about some of these products that we have. Yeah, because that... third party is going to be the savior of 5e. Yeah. And um, I even have a, a prediction when all of this is over. So 
but um, I, I guess I'll start. Um, should you ever want to experience what uh, old school is, then really you have uh, no further to look than uh, Goodman Games' original Adventures Reincarnated. So this is Into the Borderlands, which is B1, B2. This is such a fantastic product because it gives you the original adventures in print and then updates the adventures for 5e, including in their uh, interviews with the uh, original writers, original artists. But, but truly, this is about as old school as you're going to get for 5e. Mm-hmm. And when running this, like pairing a good wine, I highly recommend that you stick to basic D&D or basic 5e and don't get into even the player's handbook or or the or any anything other than just basic 5e. Yeah. Because that's how this was designed to run. Mm-hmm. Uh I will start with and I will show them together because they essentially go together. When it comes to stripping out the nonsense from really all role-playing games and get to, you know, kind of what makes games fun, look no further than Index Card RPG. Especially with 5e. Uh, Hanker Infernal is really good at just, you know, this can go, this can go, this can go. Here's everything stripped down, simplified. Now you are essentially unshackled. Have your fun. And a lot... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. With with index card RPG, it it, it started off with just rules for uh, basically bringing zones into Five uh, E instead of using a gridded map. It was just you would you would write a location or a room on index cards and you would play that way. And honestly, that's it's the best blend of theater of the mind and tactical gameplay that is out there. So I, I agree with that. And going along with another Runehammer product that I've talked about a lot, if you want 5e uh, to be deadlier and a lot more simplified and a lot more similar to what an old school game would be, 5e Hardcore Mode. That's what it was designed to do. It's a very good product. It caps levels. It simplifies a lot of things. It gets um, rid of death saves. Yeah. It gets rid of death saves. It gets rid of constitution modifiers on hit points. Uh, it, it really is a great tool for just, okay, you want to play OSR with a 5e uh, skeleton, 5e hardcore mode. Uh, another product to piggyback on that would be Professor Dungeon Master's, um, his uh, uh, Deathbringer rules. Yep. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a six panel pamphlet that you print out and it's fantastic. So for for five e and and honestly, run into the borderlands using hardcore mode or um, or or into the uh, uh, yeah the the deathbringer rules. So um, on the opposite side, if you want to get nuts, I mean you you really want to you really want to go nuts. This is another one that I recommend. It's Ar- Arcana of the uh, Ancients. It is from Monty Cook Games. Um, and it brings the world of Numenera into 5e. But it's not Numenera. It's the technology of Numenera. And there's several books out there, uh, several uh, bestiaries out there. Uh, and there's 
even an adventure and you can drop a uh, you could drop a dread destroyer in the middle of the sword coast and basically change uh, power dynamics in the sword coast forever just by um just just by dropping that in one thing that i've used this book for is in uh, my Fandelver game, instead of it being the uh, the Spellforge, right? Mm. They go into Wave Echo Cave and they find this long lost technology that has been lost to the ancients and they unlock a Dread Destroyer that begins marching towards Fandolin. And it worked out fantastic um, and was a great climax to uh, the Fandelver. Next up for me, um, you, you guys know that Levi Combs and I are boys, but right. the Phylactery is a great zine series. Just if you want to get weird, if you want direct access to that like nest of craziness that is the brain of Levi Combs, and you want to import that into your 5e games, the Phylactery is your entry point there's all kinds of crazy uh, magic items character archetypes um mini dungeons monsters just all kinds of craziness that shows up in the phylactery and it's ready to just drop into any game uh but especially 5e yeah, and Levi is such an amazing guy. It was uh, awesome when uh, when you had him on, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Levi. He he knows it, so yeah, I follow. He's got a current Kickstarter going now for uh, a new five E adventure, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, um, one complaint that people often have with. Uh, at least the D and D next era and the critical role era was that forgotten realms was so um, kitchen sink high magic that it sort of lost that, uh, that, that uh, medieval appeal, um, which is why I really got into um, Midgard, right? Um, Midgard is a, it's um, a, a medieval Europe, a fantasy medieval Europe setting that has plenty of faction play, uh, intrigue. You have kingdoms fighting kingdoms, and there's. It, it reminds me a lot of a kind of a combination of uh, of of some of the like older Greyhawk stuff, but mixed with uh, Birthright. Yeah. You know, because because you have all of this all of this uh, uh, inter kingdom play. So if honestly, Kobold Press, uh, I mean, they killed it with Midgard, and they've got several books out for this. And I think this is going to be a real savior of Five E. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, break from what I have over here uh, for just one second because sure. the next stuff is also Planet X, and I want to break that up a little bit, um, but. There are two products. One is called Spaceships and Star Worms, and it's basically a third-party uh, answer to Starfinder for 5e. It's a great kind of space fantasy uh, edition. The books, it's a phone book, uh, but it, yeah. it it's, a, it's a great edition. It adds spaceship combat, 
everything works well within 5e. It's a great addition. And as an addendum to that, also uh, the kind of free community around uh, Star Wars 5e is very good if you... If you want to try Star Wars in 5e, it's a great place to go. I know there's a lot of love out there for Saga Edition, for the West End game, Star Wars stuff. Yeah. All of that is very good. Uh, but if you want to stick with 5e, an adventure in a galaxy far, far away, then uh, Star Wars 5e is a great system. Yeah. Um, I just, I can't, I can't get past <laughs> D20 Star Wars, Fair class, enough. class-based Star Wars. But mm-hmm. I, I, I believe you. So, and, and, um, I'll certainly check it out. Um, but, um, what's, what's one of the complaints that you had about 5e was that as you grow in levels, you get way too powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you need this for. So <laughs> brand Colonia, right? If you like the stories of, uh, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, um, you like being a knave rather than being an adventurer, then this um, spaghetti fantasy game is for you. Levels only go one to six. You use the classes, you use the races or, or heritages that are in this book, and then you use the uh, well, you use the the supplement rules. This is a, a not a full conversion, but it's a it's a partial conversion of five e, and it really gives you that. Um, that that knave roguish feel um it is even said in the book that a character that levels past level six is either retired or they die (laughs) you kind of take your pick because i mean honestly if living the life of a knave you should never get to above maybe level six yeah and then my last two that i want to mention here uh again planet x games has a lot of great uh, 5e adventures. Uh, you guys have heard me talk about how uh, an occurrence at Howling Crater is the only adventure that's made me actually dry heave. Um, but <laughs> Glimmering Crypt of the Iron King is a great dungeon crawl. It's one of his more recent things. It's not as out there as some of his stuff, uh, but it's definitely uh, a cool adventure with a great premise. And then as far as high-level play goes... Uh, Escape from Skullcano Island is one of the best high-level adventures for 5e out there. Uh, as you can see, there's kaiju, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, there's great artwork that goes along with it. Um, so, if you want like a high-level adventure with lots of craziness, with cultists and giant monsters, and an island hex crawl, uh, Escape from Skullcano Island is, is going to be for you. Uh, yeah, uh, when I got that, I I we're finishing up my five uh, E campaign with my current group right now. We're looking to play something else. I, I want to go a little uh, a little nuts, a little gonzo. So I'm actually thinking about pulling a lot of Levi's stuff off of the shelf for five E because mm-hmm. uh, that's where I've got one group. They're they're comfortable playing five E right now. They will play other things, but for long campaigns, they want to play five E. And for those detractors out there, we have been playing for two and a half years now. Uh, one game of five E. So it's more than six sessions for sure. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, um, from the absolute gonzo though, um, probably 
comes my number one recommendation uh, for for five E is the the total conversion. Um, I love this product so much that I'm actually the first name on the on the backer page, um, and and uh, ruins the Simbaroom. Um, the I, I I know there are people out there that say play Simbaroom in its um, in its original setting, but quite honestly. Uh, the five E conversion of this, uh, they they convert the travel rules, they convert the corruption rules. This is a fantastic product. It's very small scale. It takes place in a single kingdom, uh, and then north of that is this huge forest called Davikar. And in Davikar are elves. The elves aren't necessarily evil, but they certainly don't want humans in their lands. And you, as an adventurer, want to go into the ruins, you want to go into the forest, and uh, due to the Iron Pact, uh, elves can kill you on sight. And so the political intrigue of all of that and and the kingdoms of Umbria and the surrounding areas of Dark Davikar is just... it's. This this reminds me so much of, of like old-school classic D&D that I cannot recommend this enough gotcha well guys that is going to do it for our episode tonight i think we've let out a good case for why 5e yeah. is a good product and some of the problems that have arise kind of around uh the the core of 5e uh but as is tradition on rolling bones i know you you have your actual play but anything you know that and anything else you want to push people towards um so again on uh, uh on mondays um so go find the channel james corp uh we're again we're playing uh, savage pathfinder it is my first uh savage worlds game and i'm absolutely loving it absolutely enjoying it so you could watch me stumble through that um, and then, uh, of course, every Friday, every Sunday, you can catch me in the chat for Legion of Myths uh, Friday Night Chill Stream, and then, of course, uh, RPG Digest. Um, the the community over at uh, Legion of Myths uh, were contentious at times, but what friends aren't? And that that's truly the way that it is. It, it, you know, is if a friend one friend can't tell another friend that they're being dumb, then why are we friends? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, guys, next week, next Tuesday, I will be joined by two returning guests uh, making his first and uh, honestly overdue return to Rolling Bones will be Casey Christofferson of uh, Frog God fame. Uh, I, I haven't talked to Casey in forever. I'm really looking forward to having him back on the show and with him will be uh, the other contributor to the Creature Double Feature that they just did. That is, of course... Uh, Roland Bones' favorite, John Hambone McGuire from the Vintage RPG Podcast. Uh, so they'll be on to talk about their Creature Double feature. Uh, because it's October and because those guys love their horror movies, we'll probably talk about, uh, you know, monsters and 5e and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, so until then, I I'm glad you guys turned out for a Tuesday show. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Uh, so I feel confident to keep plugging away on Tuesdays. So... Until next week, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.